This week's episode of the Getting to Know podcast is brought to you by Nina Connection Groups. Connections are employee resource groups created for employees by employees. Interested in creating a group or joining our women's or young professional ERG? Contact communications at nina.com for more information. Hey, everybody, it's Mike Rickheim. Thanks for joining us for a special Black History Month edition of the Getting to Know podcast. Today, we're joined by our publishing and packaging sales guru, Mr. Richard Johnson, who will spend a little time getting to know uh, both from a general standpoint as well as uh, get some views and perspective from him on Black History Month. So, Richard, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule slinging packaging and publishing products to spend some time with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about all of the, the amazing questions I'm sure will be asked. So how long have you actually been with Nina? You know, I've been with Nina 14 years now, and I know that's shocking because um, I actually thought it was 10. <laughs> that's a kind of big gap there, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I think I started counting uh, maybe a different year, but this year will be the 15th year in October. What's the experience been? Like how, how has the experience as an employee at Nina in a selling role, the portfolio has changed, different leaders through the years, how has that experience evolved as an employee? So, you know, I feel like I've been one of the fortunate ones who've had just a real diverse range of experiences here at Nina. You know, when I interviewed with Nina, I actually interviewed for a sales role and at the time they acquired Fox River. They saw my resume from my prior experience and saw that I was from some sort of a like a jack of all trades. So I remembered getting asked to interview a few more times, and I said, "Is this normal? Because um, it's like ten people I've interviewed with." But then um, third round later, they said, "Listen, we have good news and bad news. The bad news is we've narrowed out candidates down to two people, and you're one of them, but you're not going to get the role." And I said, "Oh, well, that." Ugh. I said, so what's the good news? I said, well, we want to create a position that you can come and work here and help us build a dream when it comes to analytics, sales reporting. And I said, oh, and oh, you have to move to uh, our headquarters. And so that really started my journey here at Nina. And I've since built the reporting system that I think most of it gets used now. I know it's uh, upgraded to a, a business intelligence tool, but I've been I've transitioned to international sales. Right after that, I've been a category manager. I've been a packaging sales rep. And recently now, I'm back in international sales, but it's sort of packaging, publishing, US, Europe, Asia, EMEA, essentially. And so it's been really exciting because you know, a lot of my friends would kid with me and they still think I work for a toilet paper company. <laughs> but once they see the products that I'm involved with and they hear about my travails around the world, they, they really think it's a cool just range of experience. So I'm, I feel fortunate to have been a part of all of that. So your travails around the world begin from the Alfreda headquarters, right? So you're, you're in this greater Atlanta area? Yes, yes, yes. I'm actually not, I mean, I live in Alpharetta, so I'm not, I've not been far from headquarters ever since I started Nina. So I've, I've always just been walking distance from all the decision makers and the, the amazing folks who brought the company from where it was then to what it is now. And where did you move 
from when you came to this area? I actually lived in Ohio and um, I was in the Cincinnati area and I worked for a company that was originally Champion International and it got spun off to a company called Smart Papers and they were headquartered in Hamilton, Ohio, but I lived in uh, Westchester, Cincinnati and Champion was just a spinoff and I was a part of that group, but at the same time, you know, they sold the kind of products that Nina competed with. So it was a, a, a natural transition, I felt. That's great. Exit 22 off of 75, if I'm not mistaken there. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So what were the early days like with Nina I mean, 14 years back compared culturally to your experience in your former employer? Oh, Nina was sort of... Um... You know, Nina was embarking on going through a little bit of a transition as well because they had bought a major, major competitor and in Fox River Paper. And they, you know, bringing two big companies and their cultures together, plus two reporting systems and moving everyone into one new reporting system, you know, there were just a lot of challenges that came from, you know, how do you press forward? But the Nina culture at the time sort of was a great foundation in, in terms of what you need to move toward. So I think once everyone understood what that is, it was it was really easy to overcome a lot of the challenges we had. I think comparing that to the environment I came from, it was quite refreshing because the environment I left, it had gotten pretty chaotic. The mill had announced bankruptcy, and so you can imagine just uh, the folks who you know made a made a decision not to to go, versus the one that did leave. It just left a lot of pressure and just the workload just was it just made everything chaotic. Trying to pick up the pieces from from an event like that. We came through that bankruptcy 250 days later. Yes, I, I did count, and um, we we emerged a different company. But I think. You know, the picking up the pieces from that just lend itself to a sort of a, a system that required some repair. And I, I wasn't convinced that the folks we had there at the time was going to give us that that runway to do it. Um, and so I made a decision to to go to what I thought was the house on the hill, you know, the beacon that was Nina, because Nina was was and is still the best in, in its class. And I felt, why not go and work for the best? And so it was definitely the best decision I could have made. And seeing how things played out, it definitely lent itself to, to that theory because Mark Paper is no longer around as a company. And I think, you know, I still keep in touch with some of the former employees there, but I saw some of the signs that really ultimately sort of explained what happened. But Nina was the uh, the best choice and still is. So, so if you go back to, I guess, the latter part of the first decade of the 2000s, to what extent was the greater Atlanta area an attraction for you as a black sales professional? So for me, I always, you know, admired just specifically for Atlanta, it has probably per capita the largest concentration of talent, African-American talent specifically, 
outside of maybe DC or New York. And, you know, I spent some time in Dallas when I first got into the industry, you know, more than 20 odd years ago. And I really got sort of acclimated to the South, but I felt like Atlanta was just a place where I could not just, you know, survive and, and work in a great environment, but I could thrive because there were so many examples of just things that just sort of blew my mind in terms of where you can go and the type of successes you can have here. And, um, you know, I, I moved here and we had our last son here and, you know, it was just, I love the weather because it actually did have four seasons in my opinion. <laughs> Um, I grew up in New York City, so, and I love jackets, so I love the fact that, you know, there are certain times of the year you can, you can pull out your, 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 your great jackets, but then just as a, a black man seeing, you know, the comprehensive range of how successful you can be and all the options available to you, I felt it was just a, an environment that felt very supportive, and uh, it was a place I'd always admired and thought about living, but I didn't know how it was going to manifest until until Nina. It is uh, something that as we look at our diversity, equity, inclusion platform, it's, it's a huge plus to not only have access to all the talent, very, very diverse talent that currently resides in this area, but it's a we have found it to be a very attractive place to get people of all walks of life and experiences to come. So that's good to hear that you had and have had a similar, similar experience. So Richard, the, the last couple of years have been crazy, put aside global pandemic, all kinds of social change as well. What does that do for your perspective on black history month? I think personally, I've actually feel like it enhanced a lot of the opinions I've had about it, my feelings about it, the last few years actually allowed for more light to be shown on a lot of things relative to Black history. You know, I always look back at 2020, especially, and everything that happened there outside of the pandemic and with George Floyd, I felt like 2020 was sort of, um, it's like a metaphor for 2020 vision, you know, where a lot, the world was sort of awakened to some of the things that folks have been struggling with, but you couldn't put it in the right context because it was sort of overshadowed by either someone being accused of something. You just couldn't, you just couldn't have a, the kind of conversations you wanted to have about it without folks getting defensive or, or not listening per se. And I think, you know, for me, I've always felt that Black history was always American history, right? And I've been fortunate to travel the world and no one in other parts of the country would always would refer to me as African-American, right? Everyone would assume that I'm nothing but American. So I didn't have to hyphenate or I didn't have to differentiate because I came from a place that the world saw as a beacon of hope and for me, Black history is American history. It's about endurance. It's about resilience. You know, it's about just highlighting the important contributions of individuals or groups that went unsaid, to be honest. I feel like, you know, it's about people who've turned pain into purpose. It's about 
um, just looking at a group where they've had a diversity of lived experiences and calling out the impact that folks have had on allowing this country to, to be who it is now based on their contributions. And a lot of times outside of the mainstays, outside of the, the famous ones, you know, there's so many folks who've had such a meaningful impact on this country, but their stories are unsaid. And I think Black History Month represents a time where you can hear those stories because it's like every day, you know, there's a concentration of, okay, who can we focus on outside of um, the folks that we all sort of read in textbooks and, and, and can see all the time, you know, the, the famous ones. But I'm more about the folks who can't, who have made that meaningful impact outside of what you've historically heard about or read. You talked about the conversations changing. Is it the conversations have gotten richer? Are they more frequent? Are they with different types of people? What, what's been your experience? So I think um, personally, you know, I've been approachable to where someone would ask a question that where they feel like, you know, hey, maybe this is a safe space or I can provide an answer that is not necessarily based on this one monolithic group of people, but I can walk through my experience personally, but I can try and make some sense of where, you know, if whatever the topic is, some sense of where, where we're coming from or what, you know, what one side of the argument is versus the other. And I totally understand that, you know, some, some people are a little reluctant because, you know, there's still this hesitation because you don't want to be labeled if you say something inappropriate or, um, and I think that's kind of where I've seen some of the conversations go. I think people just maybe don't want to have the conversation because they are afraid of being labeled. And you have others who might not necessarily want to hear the other side because again, this fear of labeling on both sides of the argument. And I've been in conversations where I would just try and explain the point of view so that it creates some, some empathy, but, but mostly understanding so that you can keep having these conversations because it can be very complex, but sometimes it can be pretty simple because, you know, once you sit down with someone and have a conversation, you feel like you have a lot more things in common with them than, than, than different. And unfortunately there's this, this tribalism where I equate it to like sports teams, you know, I'm like a Giants fan, but as many times as they've lost, and yes, they have just lost so many times, I still am a Giants fan, and I wouldn't let someone talk bad about a Giants fan, but I feel like we've become so tribal in, in when it comes to certain things, and we shouldn't be, because we really are talking about, you know, how can we call out our, our sameness or the things that we have more in common so we can overcome a lot of the differences, but I, I do feel like it's evolving, but more people um, are sometimes entrenched and others are willing to have that conversation. I th things are going to ebb and flow no matter, no matter what. But um, I think today the climate is rich for those conversations to, to, to happen. That's great. That's great. I've, I've heard similar things from, you know, other black colleagues and friends. There's a level of optimism that seems to exist that perhaps didn't exist in the same way. And frankly, you know, some, some of these folks have, have said, like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't spewing pessimism before. I just wasn't 
going to go out there and bring everyone down about my perspective. But there is a little more optimism, which I think is 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 a great thing. And you you mentioned your youngest son being born here. How how many kids do you have? I have three kids, two boys and a girl. My high school senior goes to Alpharetta High. My daughter's a freshman now at Alpharetta High, and my youngest son he goes to Hopewell as a sixth grader. So. Yeah, they keep you busy. Yeah, for sure. So it's got this context has to what you're describing. It's got to feel good as it relates to your kids and kind of that next generation. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think when they hear about it at a news event, I can have a conversation and put it in context for them so that they have to understand the history of it. Because I find that kids and just young folks in general, if they're not aware of really how far we've come so that they can, their voices can be made um, stronger or it can be amplified, especially with the tools they have available to them today. You know, I create that environment where they can have that conversation, but I feel like it's really important for them to understand the background and how far we've come because the life I've been providing for them is very different than, you know, what I grew up in, in terms of just the environment itself. And I think they've not seen that contrast. And so I I try to put it in context for them so that we can have those conversations about, okay, now what do you do in the future? What kind of conversations do you need to have in the future? Because they have a range of friends that are just diverse in terms of culture and the way they look and the, the, the religious background. So it's, it's just great to see it. But I think that's exactly what we've wanted for them or I've wanted from them. But, but, but still, there are things that will happen and then they would have to say, oh, wait a minute, you know, what did I just see on TV? And I would have to just explain that context. But I always measure success from not just in terms of finances. I measure success from where you started and where you are now, right? And how far you've come in between. And so I want to make sure that they have that foundation so that they can overcome challenges that might come their way. That's a great perspective. As it relates to Nina's environment, how would you rate us from where we were to kind of where we are and where, where we're heading from an inclusion standpoint? So I think... You know, Nina, just when you compare Nina to its peers, Nina is probably one of the more diverse companies in terms of the positions, the um, the people, and those who are leaders of the organization, right? This is a very conservative industry. I've been in it for you know, north of 20 years. And, and I've traveled the world, so I've actually seen it not just from a U.S. standpoint, but from a global standpoint. And, you know, having Julie Chattel walk in the room as the CEO of Nina is, I mean, it says enough, right? So I think Nina is definitely a standout company in terms of really walking that, that walk when it comes to diversity. So you, you've mentioned the global travails. What's your favorite place to visit outside the U.S.? Uh, hands down, it was Cape Town, South Africa. I do love, uh, you know, Hanover, Germany and Amsterdam as well. But I think just from the perspective of seeing one place that sort of marries so many different uh, 
landscapes and the people are beautiful. Cape Town has mountains, it has oceans, it has a wine country. It has parts of it looks like San Francisco, parts of it looks like Colorado. It's like, how do they get one place to have all of these beautiful landscapes in one, in one country? And the two oceans meet. So you have, if you're a surfer or if you just love beach culture, it gives you all of everything. And um, that stood out to me as one of the, the most beautiful places I've ever been. The, everyone was so welcoming and I can't wait to, to go back. I'm, I used to visit that as a part of sort of this tour when I would go from Johannesburg to Durban and then down to Cape Town and I would fly home from there. So it's like a week's worth of business, but it definitely stood out as one of the, the best places. Nothing against New York City, but I grew up there, um, so New York will always have a place in my heart. I was born in Jamaica, but I grew up in New York City, so, but places that outside of those two, yeah, for sure, Cape Town. So born in Jamaica, how old were you when you moved to New York? I was about 10. Okay. Um, moved to Brooklyn, and, uh, you know, my folks had emigrated years and years before, but my grandmother was raising me in Jamaica. And um, they said, okay, it's time to come be with your brothers and sisters. So yeah, I was 10 years old. How difficult was that? It was my first culture shock because I came from a country that had 80 degrees. I mean, you, the temperature would drop from a, on occasion to like 68 and we're pulling out our winter coats, you know. And to go from there to New York City in the late 80s was, yeah, that was a total culture shock. It was cold. I went to a school in Jamaica where you wore uniforms every day. And then my first public school experience where mom told me I had to dress myself. I, it just, it didn't go well because I was like, what do I, I have to think about what to wear every single day. This is, this is going to be a challenge. <laughs> and so the cold was really what I just wasn't expecting. I remember saying, it's like living in a refrigerator here. You know, it was, um, it became just a really interesting experience, and it, it helped to shape who I am. Certainly the culture shock associated with the climate, I can understand the, the shock, but would you say Brooklyn would be more of a melting pot type of environment versus most landing spots for a young Jamaican? It was, yes. But at the time, you know, my accent was pretty thick because I spoke the dialect. And I do remember having to carry around index cards and writing what I was saying that I thought I was saying in English, but the accent was so thick that people didn't understand it. And during that time, it was interesting what was going on in New York. I think reggae music, dance hall music was becoming really popular. And so that, I think, helped to usher in just getting used to the dialect, getting used to the accent. And also, I just had to immerse myself in the culture. And New York is so fast moving, so fast paced that, you know, if you're an immigrant, it won't take you long to really learn what you need to learn very quickly because that sense of urgency lives within you. And you just don't want to have too many uncomfortable days going to school where no one understands you. And in your mind, you're thinking, I'm speaking the Queen's English. It just has an accent. <laughs> so I, it didn't take me long to start speaking that Brooklyn accent on that Brooklyn vernacular, because in that environment, as a 10, 
year-old kid, 11-year-old kid, I, I just, I had to get over that very quickly. And so I had to just learn how to speak like the locals really fast. I would detect neither Jamaican nor Brooklyn from you now. So you, you've done a, done a pretty amazing job there. Now, speaking of culture shocks, I know the Getting to Know podcast is an audio experience, but over your left shoulder, I see a DePaul pennant. If I'm not mistaken... That's in the that's DePaul with a W, right? Not not w, That's yeah. in the middle of Indiana somewhere. Am I not? Am I? Am, am I it right? is. That's and you're talking to my second culture shock. Okay, and that's what I was going to get to. So a ten year old Jamaican boy moves to Brooklyn, goes through that culture shock, and now a black guy goes off to DePaul. Is that was that undergrad? Is that where you? It was undergrad. Yeah, and um, and then the other piece of this was. I was 16 years old when I started college, right? So I was pretty young, just in general, going off to a city of 7 million people to a town that I literally couldn't find on the map. I thought it was a paper town because my high school English teacher who got me to think about this place, we couldn't find it. We could not find Greencastle, Indiana on the map and because it, it was a town of 5,000 people, including the student population which was like half the, the, the number there. And I remembered landing and we were driving to the school and all I saw were cornfields just left and to my right. And then I remember making a note like, oh, okay, well, there's a zoo nearby. So if there's any, maybe that's one place I can go to. And I, and the, my, uh, my guide said, zoo, where, where you see a zoo? I said, no, over there, there's, there are horses and cows and, She's like, no, son, that's a farm. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, I'm just going to be in farmland learning about just whatever away from home at 16. And yeah, it was a total, I mean, New York was, was a culture shock in terms of its, just its size and the people and the weather. But Greencastle, Indiana represented that other culture shock. And that's where I actually learned to sort of develop this non-regional accent, really, because, you know, if you want to talk like we come from Jamaica, we can't switch it out. And <laughs> this is the dialect, you know. But if you want, if I ask for water or coffee and I'm speaking to somebody from New York, that comes out as well. So um, I, I definitely learned to communicate depending on who I'm actually speaking to, because sometimes language is just so important and every time i speak to my mom now i have to just switch back to di the jamaican dialect because it just moves the conversation a little faster and i find myself repeating things when i'm speaking this way and when i travel i think it gives them some comfort when i actually slow down because international customers really appreciate when i slow down and take you know, my time when I speak, because in in their minds, they're literally translating everything you're saying in English and thinking in English, especially when your your first language isn't, um, takes some time to process. And, you know, I've I've become very empathetic to that. So I always find myself speaking a little bit slower. And they would say, I really appreciate you doing this because I'm thinking in English and sometimes it takes 10 to 20 seconds to process everything. And, uh, and I've been just always really pride myself on being able to try and communicate across as many 
especially English speaking and English understanding folks, uh, because um, I, I just used to just uh, take it for granted, but now I, I find quite a bit of value in it. That's great. So Richard, if we were going to do a movie about your life and that of your, your wife and these two Alpharetta Raiders and a uh, little dude from Hopewell Middle School, who would play the role of Richard Johnson? Oh, man. Um, so I think I got a few more grays popping out of my head now. But so there's an actor that I've always admired. He played Martin Luther King in a in a movie recently, maybe in the last few years. David Oyelowo, I think his name is. And uh, oh, that's how you pronounce the last name. Or Wendell Pierce, because <laughs> I've, I've been approached by folks who thought I was him. And I don't see the resemblance, but... I always chuckle and I was, so I'm throwing that in the mix now just in case uh, folks look him up and say, oh yeah, I get it. Who would your wife want to play you? Oh man, that, that would be really interesting because, um, you know, my wife would probably say Salma Hayek or something like that, you know, um, because she was a Native American and she always loved that movie, um, Fools Rush In, and so she, she really admired Selma Hayek as an actress in general. So what's the family do for fun when you're not slinging product and globetrotting? Personally, I, um, I love cooking. You know, before I got accepted to DePauw, I had gotten accepted to Johnson & Wales Culinary School in Rhode Island. And the cooking has always been a passion. I've been doing it since I was 14. That actually relaxes me. So, you know, I like to make Sunday dinners and things that Grandma taught me that sometimes takes hours to prepare, but you know it's weird. But I I find it really relaxing when I'm preparing a meal for family and good friends and and so on. But the last few years I've been uh, also trying to get in the hobby of leather making. You know, making leather goods. So I uh, hand make them. I don't have any equipment um, outside. So it's a total passion project, and it's only when I have time you know, making leather goods like back. In fact, I don't know if you can see that, but in the background there, there's this, I call it the Johnson bag. And uh, it's the biggest thing I've made by hand. And it's like two leather bags combined into one. And it's uh, the biggest thing I've made as well, but it's, um, that's another passion of mine. So before we get to the uh, three questions that we end every one of the Getting to Know podcasts with, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions around advice that you would provide. First is the advice you would provide to Richard Johnson landing in Greencastle, Indiana. Culture shock number two. What would you say to that young man as he goes off as a 16-year-old onto campus at DePaul? I would say pace yourself. Um, give yourself some grace. I put myself under a lot of pressure and over, I think I underestimated what I could do then. And I felt like, you know, me just understanding how to study smart and not hard. I always felt like, you know, I, you know, just had some of the tools, but, you know, I realized that if somebody had said, listen, you're going to be fine. You're going to go through challenges in life, but pace yourself 
and make more time to just celebrate the small wins. You know, life is now, life is not five minutes from now and life is not a year from now. And when you have to deal with a lot of challenges, try and find something where you can laugh or celebrate, but note the progress little by little and, and try and take a moment to, to celebrate that. Because I, I do look back now and I'm like, gosh, you know, I've overcome quite a bit, but I, I just, um, you know, while you're in it, you just want to move on to the next. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, it's that reflection that helps to, to remind you of the character you have. Good advice for the kids too. Yeah, absolutely. So second question on the advice front is, uh, what advice would you have for our Nina colleagues as we celebrate Black History Month? What would you say to them to get the most out of it, to get the best perspective, to learn the most? So my advice is, you know, I would say if it's either music or maybe even podcasts or places in and around Atlanta that's so rich with, with culture, just take some time to to learn more about it, uh, learn more about, like I mentioned before, the the unmentioned, right? The the folks who have made a giant impact or folks who may not have even, they may have made an impact, but you probably didn't know to the extent or their personal backgrounds. And, um, you know, there are lots of museums, there are lots of just really cool places in and around Atlanta that you could um, do a quick tour of or listen to and, and just understand who some of these unsung heroes are. And, um, and I think it's, it's really worth that effort because it's just really, it canonizes really what this country is about, which is, you know, persistence and endurance and overcoming a lot of challenges. That's great. Thank you for that perspective. Well, Richard, I'm going to hit you with the three questions that we hit all of our guests with at the end of every Getting to Know podcast now. The first of which is, what can always be found in the Johnson family refrigerator? <laughs> Eggs and bread. I mean, I don't. I didn't realize how much bread I buy, even if I I don't use it. Between croissants and uh, and tortillas and sliced bread, it's always there. The kids would say, "Dad, please, no more bread." You keep forgetting that there's bread in the house. <laughs> So you're into the cooking thing. So you're, are you big into the handhelds? Is that what I'm getting at? Or is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I cook a range of stuff, but my friends typically want me to just cook a lot of the things that they love the most. And, you know, don't let me go beyond some of that. Okay. So perhaps playing into that, my second question is amongst those who know you well, what would you say you're most famous for Richard? So today it's, a fricassee chicken, like it's a, it's like a brown suit chicken that's a Jamaican um, staple, and salmon fried rice is something that I've um, incorporated into the mix fairly recently, and I make a mean mango jam that I use in puff pastry. So, um, folks, every time I mention that I'm gonna make that, they get pretty excited. My youngest love this dish I make called a bunny chow which is a curry chicken dish where the, the meat is chopped up pretty fine. And then you put it in this, you take a bread bowl, you take out all the, the bread, 
fill it with this this bunny chow, this uh, curry chicken stew. And then I take the, the, the filling and I make it into like a bunny tail and put it on top. He just loves it. It's basically a curry chicken dish that's in a bread bowl. <laughs> and we call it bunny chow. And it's uh, famous actually in Durban, South Africa. But they just love my version of it. Um, so, yeah. Great. And last question for you, Richard. What are you most looking forward to right now at this very moment? So um, a few things came to mind. It's fair to say that this last few years have been pretty challenging for most of us, particularly for me. It's been extra challenging because, you know, my family has suffered a huge, huge loss. And we lost uh, my wife, uh, Melissa, to brain cancer, unfortunately. Um, She passed in October of 2019. And that was like three months before COVID really hit. So, you know, while she suffered, I was her caregiver for 16 months straight. I was there when the phone call came and I took care of her until she took her last breath, surrounded by friends and family. And, you know, as we mourn and move, navigate through the next step in life, I'm just trying to make sure I give her her memory, the honor it deserves. But I also want to really set that um, path for my kids to see just what resilience looks like just in action and not just me talking like a parent. You know, I want to actually walk that walk for them to show them what, what it means to, to not just survive, and, but, but to thrive. And, and, you know, I think, like I said, a few months after she passes, we're sort of trying to mourn or whatever that looked like. And then COVID hit this thing that's just brought the world to a standstill. And, you know, we had to sort of kind of get back into a, a little bit of a survival mode because in my mind, I'm like, you know, they lost one parent. I just really can't see uh, or put myself in a position where they might lose two. So like, you can only imagine what was going through my head as um, a, a father of three kids. But, you know, I, we made it through. And so I look forward to just a family vacation. I look forward to planning the next weekend where they are all wanting to hang with daddy because they're you know two teenagers now i'm not as um i'm not as uh, cool as they used to think so the challenge for me is just to make sure i get them engaged in things that we all can can do and i look forward to planning that next awesome trip you know we were fortunate last year i took them to jamaica so that they could get to to meet some relatives and just really see the island I came from and experience it, you know, last summer. And that was awesome. They saw a grandma and several relatives, and then I took them to a resort. But I think for me, it's immediately, it's just putting one foot in front of the other, celebrate the small wins, looking forward to the next family vacation, even if it's driving down to Florida, getting my son prepared for the next chapter in his life uh, after high school. And and making sure that I, I count the amount of summers I have left with them and plan accordingly because it's going to go really, really, really fast. But um, walk and chew gum at the same time, I think that's really been my main motivation. They're 
you know, things are going to happen and we have to overcome some some things that you might not know how you're going to come out at the end of it. But personally, I just feel like, you know, in the midst of despair, you need to celebrate. In the midst of destruction, you, you have to create. And sometimes that's as small as me taking some leather things and sewing it um, or cooking, you know. But um, for me, it's when you can't see the horizon, sometimes I look down on my feet and put one foot in front of the other so I can get to that goal. But um, life is now and, and I need to practice, <laughs> practice believing that, practice saying that, practice showing that to the kids. And it's enjoying every moment of it today and just making plans accordingly so that they can look back and say, you know what? Dad did his very best, and, and we appreciate him for that. Not much more you can do than that. I certainly appreciate you sharing your perspective and time and, and very much appreciate your, your, your candor. Bless, bless all of you guys. Go, go take care of those kids, and while you're doing that, sling some product for us as well. Um, enjoyed hearing and learning more about your journey today, Richard, and absolutely appreciate your perspective on Black History Month and the advice for the listening audience. So thanks again for your time and candor. It was my pleasure. Thank you all. I appreciate this, uh, this, this opportunity. I really, I really do. So thank you. For those of you in the listening audience, I hope you enjoyed learning more about Richard's perspective and his journey. And we'll talk to you again in two more weeks.